Hello and welcome to this Microphilosophy podcast with me, Julian Bagini. For this edition, I'm joined by Antonio Macaro, who co-authors with me The Shrink and the Sage column in the FT and, more recently, the book of the same name. The column talks about the intersection of philosophy and psychotherapy, and so we're particularly happy to be joined today by John Sellers, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of West of England, author of the books Stoicism and the Art of Living, who has a particular interest in philosophy and psychotherapy and how they might be related. Welcome, John. Thank you for inviting me. And so you've written this paper recently about stoicism and cognitive psychotherapy and you say in it that ancient stoic philosophy is a form of cognitive psychotherapy and is also behind modern forms of cognitive psychotherapy. So could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, so really I wanted to chase up a number of references that I'd come across in my academic work looking at stoicism which suggested that a whole series of key figures in 20th century cognitive psychotherapy had referred to the Stoics as a really important um, influence on their work. And as you say, one of the claims I make in the paper is that ancient Stoicism itself is a form of cognitive psychotherapy. And I think that's fairly straightforward. I mean, they conceive philosophy as a therapy for the soul. This is an idea that they take from Socrates. So they conceive of philosophy in general as a psychotherapeutic project and they think that the things that philosophy has to deal with are dealt with in a cognitive way. It's by analysing our thoughts, analysing our beliefs, analysing the the judgments that we make that give rise to those beliefs. That's the way that we deal with the psychological problems that we might have and lead us towards an ideal good life that they, like all of the other ancient philosophers, thought was the real goal of philosophy. But the main idea that is behind both of those things is this uh, often quoted uh, thing that it's not things themselves that distress us, but it's what, how we think about them. That's right. And that seems to me that often is the, the only thing that is borrowed when, when you look at uh, the CBT and RABT. Do you think that is the only connection? Do you see any big differences? That big claim is obviously the foundational claim. That's the one that a number of the modern cognitive psychotherapists will quote. But I suppose there's a bit more to it than that. There's the thought that our emotions are the product of the judgments that we make. There's the claim that a whole series of objects in the world that we um, interact with have value because we ascribe value to them and that they're not inherently valuable. I mean, that's a key claim in Stoic philosophy. I take it cognitive psychotherapy is implicitly making that kind of claim as well if they think that just by changing the way you think about objects you can transform your relationship to them and how you, you react to them. It's effectively making the claim that those things aren't worth sweating about um, in themselves because they don't have any kind of intrinsic value. So it's taking that, making that claim too. And I take it it's also borrowing the claim that by analysing our judgments and by thinking about our beliefs, we can really work on these and, and, and make a change. You've got three main therapeutic practices in your paper. And the first one is about assigning value. So if you like, the philosophical underpinnings behind the stoic version of psychotherapy is really the claim that external objects and events and states of affairs in the world don't possess any intrinsic value. They can make that claim, of course, and people aren't going to be convinced, but if it's going to be a a philosophical version of psychotherapy, they're going to have to offer us a series of arguments. And not only are they going to have to offer us a series of arguments for that claim, but they also think that by going through those arguments, by doing the philosophical work and reaching those conclusions 
that in itself is, if you like, the first step in their therapeutic process. There isn't a rigid division between a theoretical philosophy on the one hand and then some kind of applied psychotherapy on the other. There's a sense in which the doing of the philosophy itself, the analysing the arguments, that in itself has some therapeutic value directly. Again, a really kind of Socratic idea, if you like. So the analysis of arguments about value is, is really key. It's the philosophical underpinning and it's the first step. And they, they do offer us a series of arguments as to why they think external objects don't have any value. So, for instance, money clearly doesn't have any intrinsic value because you can do all sorts of great things with it, but you can also do all sorts of nasty and evil things with it. This is an argument that Stoics borrow from Socrates from one of the early Platonic dialogues. So what then does have intrinsic value then? Well, we can see why these sorts of things don't have value. And like, I suppose things like money and fame and so forth is quite easy to buy into that. Yeah. But in terms of what actually does have intrinsic value for the Stoics, it's extremely limited, isn't it? Well, it is, yes. I mean, if you take the hardline view, the thing that has uh, real intrinsic value is virtue. And the only thing that has um, intrinsic negative value is vice. Now, virtue and vice sounds very high-minded. I suppose we might gloss that by saying the only thing the Stoics think has intrinsic value is an excellent state of mind. Getting your head straight is the only thing that has real value. Being in a psychological mess is the only thing that has negative value. In order to buy that idea, surely you have to buy into a lot of Stoic philosophy. I mean, for instance, let's take something like love and attachment. The Stoics, as I understand it, weren't very keen on these things of having intrinsic value because... You know, that's something that's not within your control to be taken from you. But, I mean, I might say, well, it is of intrinsic value. Sure, it's fragile. Sure, it could be taken away. It's still deeply important. The one about other people, that's the tough one. That's the one that people are always going to bring up as a, a counterexample. I mean, I suppose a couple of things you might say. On, on the one hand, you might not buy that claim. You might not want to go the whole way. You might want to say, I don't buy all of Stoic value theory. I think there are some things in the external world that do have intrinsic value. And if I get upset about their loss or their destruction, then I'm prepared to accept that loss as a correct judgment about the loss of something that did have intrinsic value. I see no reason why you couldn't go as far with the Stoics as you're prepared to, but still hold on to the psychotherapeutic value that's, if you like, um, the core. So you might not want to buy all of the value theory, but you could still buy the cognitive psychotherapeutic approach that they're taking. I mean, I suppose the, other, the one thing I should add is that the Stoics do accept the claim that the relationships we have with other people is a perfectly natural thing. The affinities that we have with the people that are close to us and with our uh, immediate families is part of what it is to be human, part of what it is to function normally. They're not necessarily suggesting that we completely cut ourselves off from the rest of the world, isolate ourselves from other people, have no feelings or relationships with anyone else. That's Diogenes the Cynic. That's the kind of the hardline cynicism to which the Stoics develop their philosophy influenced by, but not simply, they're not simply trying to repeat that hardline view. They're trying to produce something a bit more sophisticated and a bit more able to be put into practice in, in daily life. And in fact, it's striking how widely it was taken up, particularly in a Roman context, where you know, lots and lots of people um, embraced sort of the Stoic view as, as something that could be lived in an everyday way without having to go to the kind of extremes of Diogenes living in his barrel uh, with no family connections or personal relationships whatsoever. Yeah, I think you're right that perhaps uh, people need to think about what bits are applicable and what not because what would worry me is from a 
modern psychotherapeutic point of view is that people might take it all on board and really buy into this idea that emotions are always false attributions of value because I think that there are certain things that are actually valuable and emotions can be very useful to guide us through life and so on. So if people really took it as a whole package, that side of it would worry me. But as you say, perhaps one can be a bit more discriminating and say, and, and think through what things have value in life and what haven't, and then apply some stoic techniques to the things that we find not to have value. Sure, and Martha Nussbaum makes a, a nice point in, in one of her books where she talks about emotions, which she says, well, the flip side of this stoic approach is that if all of our emotions are effectively the product of intellectual judgments that we make and beliefs that we hold, then suddenly the emotions have some kind of cognitive value. The emotions tell you something. If you buy the stoic picture and you're deeply upset about something, that may tell you something about an implicit belief that you weren't fully conscious of. So the emotions have great value in that sense. They can help you diagnose whatever ills there are in your your life at the moment. It tells you something's wrong. Yeah, and I suppose it's a question of discriminating. If you are having a strong emotion of some kind, trying to work out whether it is telling you something real about yourself and the world, or whether it is just a jug, as Epictetus would say. (laughs) He says, I mean, this is a fairly chilling passage. He says something along the lines of, when you kiss your wife or your child goodnight in the evening, just remind yourself that should they die, it would be no different than if you dropped an earthenware jug and it smashed on the floor. It would just be the loss of another particular. That's the point that most people aren't prepared to go to. But um, we often use that in terms of if something breaks or if something goes wrong or so, so, some little thing in life. But it's more difficult to apply to someone dying or something like that. Well, it depends on the context, surely. I mean, if someone dies tragically young in what seems like a a senseless accident, then that might be difficult. If someone reaches a a good age and dies having lived a full life, and it's just simply the natural course of events. I don't see any reason why one can't think of it more in those terms. This was just what was going to happen. The, the jug was fragile, one day it was going to break, this person was mortal, one day they're going to die. There's no great tragedy there, I don't think. We use this phrase, it's just a jug, yeah. to try and calm us down if we get too agitated about something. And you can use it for fairly big things, like, you know, even your pension fund going down the pan, actually, ultimately, it's just a jug, it's only an instrumental resource. That's right. One thing you've mentioned already, though, is this connection between our thoughts and our emotions. Do you think perhaps, though, the the Stoics were a little bit naive about that? Because they they seem to suggest that, you know, emotions just are products of cognitions, full stop. Whereas, isn't it more of a kind of feedback loop? I mean, we know all sorts of ways in which our emotions affect our thinking. And in that sense, our cognitions are as much a product of our emotions as vice versa. I mean, I think that's a good point. I don't think it's necessary an objection to the ancient Stoic position, I think they'd be happy to accept that once you start to make some not very good judgments and you get emotional, being emotional will then cloud your ability to make good judgments in the future and you'll end up on a kind of a downward spiral. I mean, I suppose the other thing we might say there as well is that there is a debate we find in the ancient sources about whether the Stoics are claiming that the emotions simply are judgments or whether they're the product 
of our intellectual judgments. And one of the consequences of reading the evidence as saying that it's the product of our judgments is the thought that once you've made that judgment and you've created the emotion, the emotion has a life of its own and it can run away. And you know, once you've got the thing inside your head, you've got this irrational thing and it'll peter out in due course as long as you don't feed it anymore. But it's not as if you can simply click your fingers, change out what you're thinking and suddenly the emotion disappears. Certainly there were Stoics in antiquity who didn't think that that's how it worked. The other thing that we're wondering whether needs updating is the idea of what we have control over. Because sure. there is very much the idea that we have complete control over our attitudes and, and our thoughts and so on. And nowadays there's just so much literature that uh, shows that in fact we have very little control and that, that a lot has to do with the context in which things happen and so on. I'm sure that's true. In fact, again, there's a sense in which the Stoics are conscious of that as a problem, the way in which our social and cultural environment affect the way we think. So the Stoics have a kind of noble savage idea of human nature. They say, if you were to take an infant and drop them on a desert island on their own, free from all of the corrupting influences of society, that person would grow up to be perfectly rational, virtuous and free from emotions. It's only the corrupting influence of the culture in which we live that makes all of us such a mess <laughs> and unable to think clearly and rationally about things. Given that the Stoics claim we ought to all live according to nature, and nature is providentially ordered, and it's good, why isn't we're not all rational and calm and reflective and virtuous already? The reason why is the culture that we live in, the corrupting influences of society, um, and we can easily update that thought to take into account the sorts of modern influences that we might think of. And also perhaps use what we know about the brain to suggest that it's just not true and that actually in the state of nature we're actually designed to, to get excessively agitated about certain things, to be very sensitive to certain alarm signals and so forth. Uh, you know, I don't think human beings in the wild would perhaps survive very long if they were completely calm and tranquil and unaffected by things. There's not much survival value in being too stoical about things. But, but, but that's true, but at the same time, the account of the emotions that the Stoics give us, the idea that we feel fear when we think that there's a danger present, the way in which they give an account of the way in which emotions arise, if you think that you're, you're under threat in a kind of a state of nature situation or any other, then you'll feel fear. And that's a direct reflection of the judgment you're making. And if your life is under threat, you have very good reasons to feel fear. If you value your life, if you think your life is something inherently valuable, then it'll be correct for you to feel fear. And the, the Stoics do think that we have a kind of innate um, survival instinct. Um, but, but, should, sorry, but should you think your life is inherently valuable? I thought you shouldn't. Well, our life's like that if anyone else is a joke. In which case, they seem to be saying that although it's natural to feel fear, really, we shouldn't. If the lion eats us, bleh. <laughs> if, the, oh, if the lion eats us, the lion eats us, it's too late. I mean, I suppose the thought is that there's this natural inborn survival instinct, which is part of our nature, which is, if you like, beyond philosophical justification. This is how we interact with the world. The Stoic point, much later on, when thinking about the kind of ideal intellectualized sage, is to think that, well, in fact, who I really am and what's most important and what I ought to try to preserve is not merely my biological existence, it's my rationality. So for someone who hasn't reached that level, for someone who's younger, uh, who hasn't reached full rationality, simply surviving as a physical being is a perfectly natural thing to do. 
they're suggesting that we live according to nature as well as living according to reason, of course. But if we're Socrates faced with the execution, threatened with having to choose between our intellectual integrity versus our continued biological existence, we choose our intellectual integrity over our biological existence. So it's in those situations that suddenly our continued physical survival might be uh, relegated in favour of something considered more important and more, and more noble. And this is why so many of the Roman Stoics end up killing themselves because <laughs> <laughs> they find themselves in impossible situations where they can't preserve their principles uh, in face of uh, physical threats. Uh, Tony mentioned there are three things that you mentioned as things from Stoicism that might be useful in a modern therapeutic practice. The second of those goes very much against the zeitgeist of positive thinking which is assuming the worst I mean that was my spin on certain stoic ideas I'm not sure if I can really push the claim that that's kind of orthodox stoic thinking but it seems to be one of the things that comes out of uh, some of the texts I mean there's a fantastic text by Seneca called On Providence he, he says there are two types of fortune bad fortune is one thing we're all aware of that but good fortune can be just as dangerous if things go really well all of the time that's really something to be concerned about because things can only go downhill from there there's a sense in which it's very easy to become complacent you find yourself being set up for a fall you start to get used to all of these wonderful comfortable things that you have and that's not good psychologically because it means you'll be in an even weaker position to cope with the bad luck when it comes along, which of course it will, because things don't go right all the time. So constantly bearing in mind that things can go wrong, will go wrong, and and ought to go wrong from time to time, because this is just how the world works, that in itself is an important, if you like, mental exercise. And that's quite interesting because my understanding of the stoic rationale for this practice is that when something does go wrong, then you're prepared and then you're less likely to lose your rationality because you know how to handle it, because you prepared yourself by thinking about it. But it can also be used in other ways. For example, you can use such a practice to remind yourself not to take things for granted, for example, so to be aware of how lucky you are. Uh, That's right, yeah, absolutely. But also, as you were saying about expectations, it's quite important not to expect that things should always go right. I mean, I think there's a lot of the, a lot of the ethos uh, nowadays is that, you know, positive thinking and so on. It's almost like an expectation of things should, should go right all the time. I think so. And, I mean, another thing as well that often strikes me, particularly in sort of contemporary culture, is the way in which people think they do have a lot of control about their lives and the way things are going to work out. And it strikes me how many significant and important moments in my own life have been down to the decisions made by other people or completely random, contingent events that I couldn't possibly have predicted. And that, in fact, in terms of the course of my life to date, I've had very little control over it. I've, I've had directions in which I wanted to point myself. But in terms of actually achieving goals, the idea that if you just work hard enough and just earn enough money and just do the right things, everything will work out, that just seems blatantly false. That's just not how things go. I think that's important simply because it's true. This is philosophy. The truth is important. But also, again, it's a, it's a, it's a valuable wake-up call, I think, to be a bit more humble about the external forces that contribute so much to, to the way we live. Whether or not one agrees with the Stoics or not, at least they saw the positive state of mind as being linked with truthful perception of the world. It seems to me today people often don't care whether it's truthful or not. It's always going to make you feel good. 
It does potentially have a sort of misanthropic element, though, doesn't it? What's that Marcus Aurelius quote that you're fond of saying, Antonia? Oh, about people being ungrateful. Yes, yeah. But, but yeah. when you get up in the morning yeah. before you go out to face the world, remind yourself that most of the people you meet are going to be yeah. grumpy, ungrateful, um, inconsiderate, yeah. rude. Yeah. And th- this is what you should expect. Yeah. Um, if you go into a, a busy market, expect to be jostled. Don't turn around and feel affronted because someone's banged into you. What do you expect if you go to a busy place? There's another passage in Epictetus. When you go to the Roman baths, expect people to splash you with water and acting considerately. What else do you expect if you go somewhere like that? Yeah. <laughs> when you started actually describing what you should expect of people that day, I thought, actually, it's what I should expect of myself most of the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish it weren't the case. Perhaps it's just time for the third thing that um, you mentioned in the list. Yes, which is using bad things that happen as challenges or training opportunities. That was the third practice that yes. you found useful. Yes, I mean, that's another one that comes directly from Seneca. Again, in his essay on Proverbs, which, I mean, it's a fantastic piece of literature. And for anyone who is sceptical about the Stoic approach, it presents the real hard line that really paints it black and white. He spends a lot of time there talking about the way in which we ought to think about difficult situations as challenges and as opportunities, rather than simply moaning that things haven't worked out the way that we want them to. And a number of the arguments that he gives are later taken up in a Christian context as the, the, the claim that when challenges confront us, we ought to treat this as something sort of providentially given to us by God um, so that we can say everything that bad happens is really good. There's a bit of that in Seneca. And he also, a couple of, of nice passages he talks about there is the way in which people who think they're good and think they're generous and kind and considerate and think that they'll be there for their friends no matter what only really know if they will be when they're put to the test. You only really know who your friends are when everything falls apart and you know who you can rely on. And they only know that they're that kind of good friend when they're called upon in those, in those situations. So it's easy for the, the Stoic to talk about being virtuous, but they don't really know until they're up against the wall and they see how they behave. And if they run like cowards and start crying, they, you find out they're not that Stoic after all. <laughs> That's actually an interesting point because it did lead me to one thing I felt I had to ask you about the proof of the pudding being in the eating is that you talk about how it's a calm, rational mental state upon which our well-being depends is what they're striving for. And, you know, without sort of being too Oprah about this, um, you know, would you say in your life, I mean, could you genuinely say that your understanding of stoicism and everything has helped you at least got closer to that than perhaps you might otherwise have done? I think it has at certain times of my life, perhaps not so much in other times of my life. But I think the way of thinking about emotions and psychological problems has been very helpful. I'm certainly no sage, none of the ancient Stoics claim to be sages, I'm certainly not going to make that claim. But the idea that when I'm upset or when I'm frustrated, that the way to think about what's going on in my own life is to think about, well, what are the ascriptions of value that I'm making that is leading me to react to a situation in this way? Um, And that, I think, is very helpful. It's something that I found very helpful to think about. I think also that some of the other points that we've discussed already about putting things in perspective, expecting that things always aren't going to work out um, the way we might like, and that many of the forces that shape my own life are actually out of my control. and, And that's just inevitably how it's going to be. 
You said that, I felt a bit embarrassed there because you said that you don't claim to be a sage and neither did anyone else. I don't really either. I think our shrink in the sage column it should be understood as tongue-in-cheek titles. <laughs> I hope people get that. Anyway, but the, uh, the, the book is now out and you can follow the column in EFT. John's books are The Stoicism and The Art of Living, The Stoics on the Nature and Function of Philosophy, also highly to be recommended, so rush out and buy those too. Thanks so much for talking to us, John, really appreciated it. Well, thank you so so much, it's been great fun. Thank you.